Welcome to A Well-Cared-For Human, the podcast that tries to convince you that you are 100% normal and an even better than okay example of the human species, despite the fact that sometimes we feel like the craziest, most incapable, or worthless creatures on the face of this planet. I'm Corey, an author, a creative, and the host of the show. Whatever you're bringing to the table today, I hope this episode proves to be a dose of inspiration for you on your quest to become a well-cared-for human. You can find the episode show notes, your free wellness blueprint, and more at awellcaredforhuman.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Hello, humans. It's your host, Corey, and today we're going to talk about depression. Now, full disclosure, I am not depressed at the moment. I do have a history of depression, and I absolutely still have horrible days like anyone else. But that chronic long-term suffering that is often associated with depression hasn't been part of my daily life for about 10 years. And also, before we begin, I want to say that this episode has a trigger warning. I mean, I feel like my entire podcast (laughs) should have a trigger warning. But in particular, I'm going to be speaking a bit about the time I was suicidal and uh, some of the suicidal ideations I was struggling with. So if that is a trigger for you, please be mindful. If you are dealing with something that heavy right now, maybe don't uh, listen to this episode now. Maybe wait for the future or maybe don't listen to it at all if that's going to make things harder on yourself. I just want you to take good care of you. So use your discretion on that. And because even though I absolutely remember how terrible it was and how difficult it was for me to stabilize myself during those times, I also just want to say that depression is serious. It can be very heavy, especially if you are struggling with the suicidal ideations like I was back then in the worst of it. And I was only able to get a handle on my depression because I got professional help. I had a great, very skilled cognitive behavioral therapist, Dr. Art, He was very supportive of me. He taught me a lot of coping techniques to deal with what I was going through. So again, this episode is not a replacement for professional help. It's just me sharing my experience with difficulties of depression. And it does not mean that my experience will be like your experience, but I just do hope that you find something useful. No pressure if you don't. I'm here for you either way, but I just want you to be mindful as we jump into today's content and today's theme. So here we go. It might surprise you to know that I didn't realize I was depressed until I almost killed myself. I was 24. I was in graduate school. I had just started my MFA program, so I was learning how to write, how to be a writer. I had been living in Michigan for about six or seven months at this point. And one night, I just decided that I wanted to die. I was so tired, literally and metaphorically, literally because I was having a really hard time sleeping. For the first time in my life, I was experiencing horrible insomnia. I didn't sleep for days at a time until the point that I was feeling like I was hallucinating when I was awake. I don't know if you've ever been awake for so long that reality takes on that strange dreamlike quality where you literally feel like you're out of your mind, (laughs) that maybe you're dreaming or that maybe things are unreal. And that's where I was. And the doctors tried to put me on a sleeping pill. I won't say which one because I am not interested in being sued by a major pharmaceutical company. But I will say that it did not work and that all it did was trigger sleepwalking in me. And these bouts of 
I guess we could call them blackouts, in which essentially time was skipping for me. And that is not a good place to be where you're skipping time and you're waking up or coming to your senses kind of in the dead of night outside in winter in Michigan in your underwear. So I was not reacting well to this attempt to make me sleep using medication. So I immediately stopped taking it, which was probably a wise decision on my part. And then metaphorically, I was exhausted because I had just reached a breaking point in my trauma cycle. Too much had built up inside of me, inside of my mind and my psyche, my emotional field, whatever we want to call it. None of it had been processed because I just did not have time to process it. I did not have the skills to process it. I was too busy trying to survive. So there was no processing anything that happened, including most recently, at least most recently to this sort of breakdown that I was having brought on by the insomnia, my mother's two brushes with death because not long before that she had been shot and she tried to convince the police that She had accidentally shot herself, even though they knew that it was impossible for her to do that. Given the angle of the shotgun, you can't shoot yourself in the chest with a shotgun, by the way, (laughs) even if it grazes you the way it did. And then again, with the my uncle hitting her in the head with the ashtray, which I've mentioned before. So I just had been through a lot and I couldn't deal with anymore. And now I wasn't sleeping. So this was just terrible all the way around. And so it culminated in February of 2008. And I just decided I wanted to die. And I didn't figure out how I would do it. Fortunately, it didn't get that far. But I did decide that before I died, I was going to finish one piece of unfinished business. And I've mentioned this in the last episode in the episode of recommitment, the high school letter that I had been carrying around. But just in case you haven't listened to that episode, let me tell you about this letter that I wrote in high school. So our senior English teacher, I won't say her name because maybe she doesn't want to be (laughs) in this podcast. I don't have permission. But she made all of her students write a letter to themselves 10 years in the future, kind of what you hoped your life would look like, what you hoped you had accomplished, anything you wanted to say essentially to yourself 10 years in the future. So here we are, 17, 18 years old. I'm 17 in the class, and I write a letter to 27-year-old Corey. And I had been carrying this letter this entire time. So if I was 24, you know, I had been carrying it for seven years. I was only three years away from opening it. I was like, okay, if I'm going to die, I'm reading this letter. I'm not going to die having carried this letter around for seven years, moving around, all the crazy things that happened, held on to this letter. I'm not going to leave this earth until I read what I wrote to myself. And so I was like, I'm going to read this letter and then I'll kill myself. Which is interesting in hindsight because many people, when they decide they would like to die, they write a suicide note and leave it behind for the people. Me, I wanted to read what I had written to myself and I had not even had thoughts of leaving a suicide note. Like I didn't know what I would even tell anyone. I thought it was pretty self-explanatory. I was tired and I did not want to be here anymore. And so I had no plans of writing a suicide note, but I wanted to read this letter I had written seven years before. And so I did. I read the letter and I just, when I finished, I cried harder than I had remembered crying ever in my entire life. I was just sobbing because I knew that I couldn't do it. I knew that I could not, under any circumstances, 
die. I could not give up. And the reason why I felt that way and I just fell apart and was sobbing because I knew that I was going to have to stick it out no matter what is because the letter that I read, this girl, the 17-year-old version of me, was so hopeful. She wrote about dreaming of traveling. She talked about loving herself. She talked about, you know, things that she wanted to have out of life. And it was just such a hopeful and spiritual and oddly wise letter for a 17-year-old kid. I don't know if I was possessed that day. I don't know exactly what happened, but it was just so loving and insightful that I was like, I'm going to kill this 17-year-old kid because that's what made me realize it is that if I died now at 24, I was essentially not just ending my life and my hopes and dreams for myself. I was ending them for this for this 17-year-old kid who was, of course, me, but the most hopeful and aspiring version of me, the part of me that had been through hell and still wanted things out of life. And I was like, oh my God, I cannot do this. There was just some kind of strange recognition in that moment that I could not kill this version of me, even though I wasn't feeling like her in that moment. I was, you know, sleep deprived and traumatized. Terrible combination. (laughs) Depressed, traumatized, and sleep deprived. Trifecta of uh, danger. But I just couldn't do it. And I was like, oh my God, okay. So if I cannot do it, I also know that I cannot move forward from where I am now. I absolutely need help. I'm drowning in my unresolved trauma. So I just was kind of stuck in this in-between state. And I'm on the floor of this bedroom in this house that I rented my, my first year in my MFA program. And I'm clutching this letter and I'm crying my eyes out. I'm crying like the world is ending. Because in a lot of ways, it was. Like, everything that I had ever known, it was it was ending. I was calling quits on all of it. And then the next day, I get up and I book a session for therapy. I get in that very week. I don't think I had the gall to tell my therapist that I was suicidal because I was a very ashamed of the fact that I felt that way, that I felt like I was giving up or whatever. I just didn't want anyone to know. And so I'm sure he knew, though, I mean... <laughs> For years, I walked into this guy's office twice a week, and I just saw him for an hour. So surely, he knew knew what was going on. I mean, because in the beginning, all I could do was cry. I would go into this office, I would walk into the building, and I would go downstairs, and I would be led into his little, like, dimly lit, comfortable room, and I would sit on the couch, which fortunately was, like, facing him. I didn't have to lie down and stare at the ceiling, which I guess I could have done that, but I didn't. I just sort of sat down across from him. And I would just cry. For an hour, I would just cry. And sometimes he would ask me questions or sometimes he would just let me cry. And later, I remember asking him if it made him nuts that all I did was go in there and cry for hours. And he told me that, no, he was happy to see it, which I was like, what What do you mean by that? <laughs> what do you mean you're happy to see me cry? And he said it was because it meant that I was no longer holding on as tightly to all of the things that had happened to me that I was no longer keeping everything deep down inside of me and just sort of soldiering on. And that he took it as a sign that I was serious about letting everything go, that I was serious about moving through it, and that some part of me, no matter how reluctant it might have been, was committed to letting go of the strong front that I had put up for so many years because my situation had not left me with any other choice. All I could do when dealing with my past, with my trauma, was 
to put up a strong front. I couldn't fall apart when the people around me either didn't allow it, like my father, or because they were losing it faster and more dramatically than I was, so I couldn't fall apart in the face of them falling apart, as was the case with my mother. Because my mom, you know, was always falling apart, and I had to be strong for her, and because my father resented even the barest whiff of weakness, and so, you know, I wasn't allowed to be vulnerable around him either. Essentially, I had gone through hell for 24 years at that point and kept every ounce of it inside of me until it was too much. And by too much, it meant I reached this point where I just wanted to die. And Dr. Art, who was the therapist I was working with at the time, said that the tears were a great sign that showed him it meant I wasn't going to keep it in anymore. He might have been a little bit too encouraging with that because now I'm just a crier all the time. <laughs> it's been about 15 years since I had that first session with Dr. Art, and I think he would be proud if he were still alive. He He's not. He passed on from cancer many years ago, even after I had stopped seeing him. A few years after I stopped seeing him, he passed away from cancer. I think he would be proud about how easily I cry now. <laughs> I cry. I cry about everything. I don't think my wife is as pleased by that, but uh, I am a crier. Now, uh, a complete 180 turnaround from my previous <laughs> habits and mode of living. But he would tell me that it's better to let it out than to keep it all inside. So what did I learn from my depression, from this really dark, uh, difficult period of my life that lasted for several years? It, it lasted for a long time. The, the lowest low was that moment of contemplating suicide of wanting to die that moment before I read the letter. And even when I read the letter, and I did not yet know how to crawl out of the hole I was in, those were probably my lowest times that I had ever dealt with. But I was still very depressed for years after that. And what did I learn in those years where I was trying to work through it and through the eating disorder that followed? I was a severe bulimic, which turns out is just another way of wanting to kill yourself. I did not know that, but someone told me that bulimia is another manifestation of uh, suicidal ideations. Like if you have so much self-loathing for yourself, it's like another way to hurt yourself, to punish yourself. I didn't kill myself, but then I was severely bulimic for a year, and then I was able to stop the bulimia, but still very depressed. And so it was a long trudge out of that darkness and it took me a long time but there are things that I learned during that time and one of those things is the weight of depression that heaviness is often the result of unprocessed trauma when I only had enough energy to go to my classes in the morning and then come home in the afternoon and spend the rest of the night in a fetal position on the couch uh, not eating not showering sometimes I wouldn't even get up and turn on a light I would just lie there in a heap that was my sign that something was going on. Or when I would play video games for 12 hours straight, which listen, I've got nothing against TV or video game binges, but if I do it without even enjoying it, that is a clue to me that I'm not in a good space. I learned to identify some of these signs of checking out, of checking out of my life, that usually that means something is going on with me. Something is under the surface that I'm not able to look at yet. I also learned that anyone can be depressed and that there's no shame in it. At first, I was really upset by the idea of being depressed. This was really drilled into me by my father, who just had such a fear of emotions in general. This idea of depression was something for weak people, 
And also he just really drove home this point that I was just like my mom and that I was crazy like her, that any small mistake was just going to send me into an emotional whirlwind and I was never going to be able to get out of it. So when she would have these manic depressive episodes and then I was, you know, feeling depressive, I was like, oh my gosh, he's right. This is the proof that I am sliding past the point of no return. And so there was a lot of shame, a lot of um, rejection of what I was feeling, of me fighting against the depression, trying to tell myself, no, I wasn't, that I was going to be okay. And it was really hard for me to work past that, to realize that there's no shame in asking for help, that there is no shame in wanting to take back your life, take control of things, or even just acknowledging that, hey, you're in a really dark place and you don't know how to get out of it. I also learned that I could still take care of myself when I was depressed as long as I was able to meet myself wherever I was. And that really meant letting go of expectations of what I should be able to do, what I have to be able to do, because that's kind of the situation. It's like, oh, if you can't do X, Y, and Z, you know, if you can't eat healthy, if you can't shower every day, if you can't, whatever it was. And I would tell myself, oh, here's the proof that you're failing, that you're not doing it well. So basically this kind of emotional spinoff that was compounding the situation and making me feel worse about myself. If I let all of that spinoff go and just said, this is where I am today. This is what I can do today. And it's not 50 things. It's only one thing. It's only two things. And just being very patient with where I was rather than using it as ammo to berate myself or make things worse. That allowed me to progress more than when I used it as a weapon against myself. So basically just laying off myself, not giving myself a hard time about where I was, really helped me to move from that space more easily. It seemed like me beating myself up was keeping me down more than what was actually going on in my life. Because I had already started to take incremental steps away from the terrible people. So the people who were causing the trauma and the problems, I had begun to remove them, but I was still stuck with me and I was still stuck with my habits. The work needed to be done within myself, not just my external environment. And it took me a minute to figure out what that looked like and what I could do about that. The earlier part of my depression was just a haze, kind of a listless experience. Nothing felt good. Nothing tasted good. I could be with all of my favorite people. I could be in my favorite place. I could be eating my favorite food. And just nothing would make me happy, either because I, I felt nothing at all. I was completely shut down. Or because all of it was tainted by this pervasive sadness, this sense of lack, this feeling that something was missing, that something was wrong with me. And it was really hard for me to want to take care of myself when I felt like that. And yet self-care was exactly how I got out of my depression. So shifting from that space of I absolutely do not want to take care of myself and I don't believe that I can take care of myself and then doing it anyway, even though I felt absolutely nothing for a long time in the beginning, that's what changed everything for me. And some of the self-care things I did was I kept up with the therapy. I kept seeing Dr. Art twice a week, every week with my cognitive behavioral sessions so that I could learn those techniques that I needed to deal with those negative narratives to battle the bad habits and limiting beliefs that I had that were kind of keeping me down, making me spiral. And then I prioritized my self-care. Even if I didn't want to, I would force myself to take a shower every morning, to eat every day, to go to bed at a certain time. And it was so slow with a lot of slip-ups. 
you know, one night I would be in bed by 10 and really proud of myself. And the next I was up at 3am having sex with a drunk, toxic ex (laughs) that I should not have even been talking to. And then hating myself after for weeks. So there was a lot of this pendulum experience in the beginning where I would do really great for a day or two and then do something really terrible to myself. And then I'd do great for a day or almost a whole week. And then, oh, look at me binging this cake. You know, it was a very long, slow learning process to figure out what made me feel better and how to be consistent in my care. Recognizing what made me feel worse, recognizing what perpetuated my negative habits. It took a while to learn how to choose wellness over instant pain relief because wellness is slower. Wellness is not immediate. And a lot of these instant gratification pain relief things that we do, like drink or binge or numb out, is what we long for in those moments. So it's often our first choice. And so it took me a really long time to move away from that. I really had to learn how to be patient. I had to keep reminding myself that I was working through 20 plus years of trauma, that it wasn't like I got here overnight. I was dealing with this at the end of a very long destructive cycle and that it might very well take me another 20 plus years to get out of it. And I tried to focus on building my mental and emotional management skills. All of the things I live by now, meditation, journaling, affirmations, exercise, all those tools that I talked about in the earlier episodes for my toolbox, all of that was developed during my depressive period. All of those were the things that I did to learn how to get myself to a more stable emotional state. I read a lot of books about how to live with depression, a lot of books on how to work with your trauma, Because I basically just accepted that maybe I would never be happy. Fortunately, I am. (laughs) Fortunately, I am today. But at the time, you know, I, I only found my way out by accepting completely that this might never change. This might just be my new normal. And how am I going to live like this if that's how I'm going to live? And even just having complete acceptance like that moved things so much for me. And... It opened up these doors for self-love, self-compassion. I took a lot of classes and I did some workbooks on these things. So I just really doubled down on figuring out how to live like this. And I also figured out what it meant to practice gratitude for myself. More than once during this time of my life, I would get pissed off at my parents. I would think things like, if you had just done your own work, if you had just taken care of your own traumas, I wouldn't have so much to carry now. You just pushed it all off on me. And these thoughts really led me to realize how amazing it is that I wanted to do the work for myself, that I was willing to stick with it. Even when I screwed up and suffered a setback, I always recommitted. I always did the work anyway, no matter how angry I was about it. Uh, So if you are out there doing the work, don't forget to appreciate yourself. Be proud of yourself. This shit is not easy. If it was, everyone would be doing it, and we both know that they are not. Everyone is not doing this. And so give yourself some credit. Be proud of yourself every day that you get up and that you keep choosing you, because it's really hard to do. And the fact that you even want to do something nice for yourself, do something kind for yourself, that is absolutely amazing. Okay, so that's all I have for you today on depression. Again, please remember that this was just my experience. The experience of depression will be different for everyone. And it is important to share these kinds of experiences and stories with other people so they don't feel so alone. But again, it does not replace getting real help 
getting a therapist, getting medication if you think you'll benefit from medication. And oh, before I sign off on today's episode, I just wanted to remind you guys that I have opened up the show to questions. So if you have a specific question or a situation that you would like me to respond to, you can email me at cory at coryamstrom.com. The email will be listed in the description of this episode as well. You can absolutely withhold your name. I would never share your information on the show if you don't want me to. So please don't worry about that. I just been thinking over the Christmas break uh, what I wanted to do with the show, what I wanted it to look like in 2023. And it occurred to me that every one of us is different. We have different experiences. We're coming from different places. And maybe you're struggling with something and you think you could benefit from my thoughts on it. And if that's true, please feel free to reach out to me and I will do my best to answer you in an upcoming episode. Hopefully this will be an opportunity to give you guys more personalized help and attention because I can share my own stories, my own experiences all day long, but it might be of more benefit to you if it was personalized a little bit. So if you think that's your jam, please email me and I will do my absolute best. But regardless, I will be back next week with another episode of A Well-Cared-For Human, and until then, please take good care of you. This episode of A Well-Cared-For Human was written and produced by me, Corey Marie. The music was by Late Night Feeler and Esther Abrami. If you like what I'm doing here, please consider visiting my Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you get early ad-free access to the episodes, as well as a monthly patrons-only Q&A, bonus videos, and more. Not to mention that your Patreon support lets me know that you find value in the show and want it to continue. You can find me on Patreon by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Marie. If you can't support the show financially, that is okay. You can still subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, and recommend the show to your friends, not just the neurotic ones. All of this helps so much. And as always, thank you for listening.